when I was a kid and went to the swimming pool, it was really hard to get into the deep end. First of all, they had taken red paint and stencils and they had lettered on the concrete all around the deep end, warning, 12 feet, warning, 12 feet, warning, 12 feet. And then, uh, if a precocious first grader, me, wanted to sort of sneak my way into the deep end of the pool, they had this uh, rope that stretched across the pool with bobbers on it and it kind of cordoned that off and they would often station a lifeguard in a chair right there at that sort of cordon to make sure that no little kids got into the deep end of the pool. That's what the pool was like. Nowadays, when I go to a hotel or have a chance to be at some resort, they have a different type of pool. And this is what's called a beach entry pool where you walk up to it and it's just like you're at the beach because all of a sudden, before you know it, your toes are wet. It's this gradual incline the whole way. There's no steps, there's no ladders. You just, all of a sudden, you're kind of in before you know it. And I've noticed how people go about swimming in this kind of pool. First of all, they get in sooner than they thought they were going to and they maybe get about knee deep and a lot of people kind of bend over and splash some water up on themselves. And then, because they're on a slant, they can't help it pretty soon they're kind of like this and they're about waist deep and it's not much longer than that and they're down in the deep end of the pool. So the one type of pool tries to keep you out of the deep end, the other one makes it almost impossible to not be in the deep end of the pool. Now, if you were selecting an image for the life of prayer, which of those two pools would you choose? I want to suggest that the way God has designed the life of prayer is like a beach entry pool where he, he makes it so that we all just naturally get in. As soon as the Holy Spirit enters our hearts, we just go, Abba, Father, all of a sudden we're praying. Our toes are wet before we even knew it. And because we're on a slant, we can't help ourselves. There is placed within us this supernatural inclination to go deeper in prayer than we have gone so far. We just want to keep moving this way. And this, I think, is why when you bring up a title like How to Go Deeper in Prayer, everybody immediately feels guilty. It constellates everybody's sense of guilt and shame. They're like, oh yeah, I'm not very deep in prayer. I'm actually kind of shallow in prayer. I hope you don't ask me about my prayer life. Okay, right? And we all have those feelings. And I don't think it's because anybody's at church wagging their finger at people about you coulda, you shoulda, you oughta. I really think it's because within us, there's this built-in Holy Spirit hunger for more. There's this sense that wherever I am in the life of prayer, there's deeper water beyond me. And so I want to answer this question this morning for all of us, if I can. And that is this. How do I go deeper in prayer? This is something that you need to know about if you are longing for God. In a group this size, I can say quite confidently, some of you are deeply longing for God. There's been kind of a stirring these last few weeks. There's kind of an awakening in your soul that is reinvigorating you around prayer. And, and you're sensing that the heavens are opening and you have a, a renewed and growing desire to get into prayer and, and you're just longing for that. If that's true, then I hope this sermon this morning will focus your longings, get you to your longings, and speed you on your way. But... Probably a larger group here this morning would say, that's not me. I'll tell you where I am. I'm kind of dry in prayer. I'm kind of stuck in prayer. 
I'm actually sort of confused about what is going on. I can't tell what's going on. I don't know why what used to be kind of satisfying for me is not anymore. I, I, I don't know whether I'm going deeper and it just feels weird or whether I'm actually getting shallower in prayer or maybe I got caught in some kind of whirlpool of prayer and I'm spinning around like this. But I don't know what's going on. This morning, if I could, I, I, I hope by God's grace to give you clarity and hope. Because if you do not understand how God often leads us deeper in prayer, you could misread your situation. Here's what I mean. Those very circumstances in prayer right now that feel dry, that you don't like, that that you kind of are chafing against, could they be the very circumstances by which God is allowing in your life so that you will go deeper in prayer than you've ever gone before? Let's look at this together. Now, the, the very first sort of prior question before we answer how do I go deeper in prayer is what is deeper? What exactly is deeper? Everybody talks about going deeper in prayer. What does that mean? So uh, we could do a multiple choice question. Uh, option A, deeper in prayer means consistency. You are deeper in prayer if you are regular, if you are consistent in your prayer life. Okay. Option B would be I I pray for a lot of people in prayer. I have an expansive scope of intercession that I pray for. And, and that, I, I sort of own that territory in a spiritual sense. Option, option C is there's a, a sense of answers that come. I boldly pray for things to happen, and they do. It's not just that I ask. It's that like God answers, and I, and I have this sort of prophetic boldness to enter the presence of God and, and lay hold of an answer. And, and option D would be faith. When I pray, I go with faith. I approach the throne of God with boldness. Now, which of those would you say is deeper in prayer? Well, all of those are awesome, and so I suppose we could say all of the above. But what I want to suggest is something much simpler this morning, and that comes before all those things. Would you turn with me to Psalm 63 in your bulletin? Now, Psalm 63, the Bible tells us, was written when David was out in the desert of Judah. Now, why was he in the desert? Not, not for his complexion or the climate, right? I mean, the reason he's in the desert is people are after him to try to kill him. And you go in the desert because nobody can live there. So they won't follow you there. They, they can't follow you there because they can't survive out there. But you can't survive out there. If you don't get water, you die. And so he, he's scared, he's running for his life, he's hiding out in caves, he's lonely, but most of all, he's thirsty. And in that state of mind, here's the prayer that he prays to God. Oh God, you are my God. Now let's, as I read this, and I point to you, would you say the next word in the verse? Oh God, you are my God. Eagerly I seek. My soul thirsts for My flesh faints for as in a barren and dry land where there is no water. David's not longing for faith, answers, anything. He wants God. He's desperate for God. He's saying, God, as desperate as my body is right now, where if I don't get water, I will get dehydrated and die. That is how desperate I am for your living presence in my life. I need you that much. I have to have you. Could it be that deeper in prayer 
means seeking God and finding God. That the water in the pool is God. And so the very first believer who's been a believer for five seconds is in the pool to some degree. But each one of us over our lifetimes in Christ can go deeper and deeper and deeper in the pool seeking God and finding God and seeking God and finding God and even when we die, go on and behold Him face to face. That is what it means to go deeper in prayer. Now, we might ask, right, I mean, uh, what kind of desperation are we talking about here? I mean, thirst doesn't translate to our culture. Not only do we not live in a desert, we live in a place where we get more precipitation than we want, right? But every hundred yards, there's some sort of place where you can drive through and you can get a venti and you can get a big gulp. And my car's got all kinds of plastic cups in it from all the drinking I do. I am never, ever thirsty, okay? So I got a parallel that I think is a better analogy for us about how desperately you and I need God and should seek God and, 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 and allow that hunger to grow in our soul. A couple weeks ago, I was in California on a business trip, and as the day wore on, I had these abdominal pains, and they just got worse and worse and worse until I actually could not walk. I was kind of like bent over, like shuffling around my hotel room. I was in so much pain. Uh, doubled over. And so I tried to lie down and sleep. I couldn't sleep. And I tried all these over-the-counter meds and nothing was working. So finally at 12.30 in the morning, I reluctantly took the keys down to the garage, got the, uh, parking, uh, got the rental car, and, and drove to the hospital. Now I'm very glad that Alamo Rental Car does not know what condition I was in when I was driving their vehicle. Because here's what I was like, is that a car? Is that a lane? I don't know. I don't care. Just get me my payments. Get me my payments! And so I got to the hospital. And after 45 minutes there, I did have one brief visit with a doc, but the only productive thing that had happened for me was that I got this plastic bracelet. And so the nurse came in, and the nurse was being kind of chatty, right? And, um, and he was like, hey, where are you from? Chicago. And uh, so, uh, you're going to be flying home soon? Yeah, I hope. You know. And so finally, I, I lost all pastoral decorum. And I just said, look, the doc said I could have pain meds. I want the pain meds. Can I have the pain meds now? He's like, well, they're going to go in your IV, and I have to set that up. I'm like, oh, good, 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 you do that. Are you and I that desperate for God where we're like, if I don't get these pain meds, I'm going to die. If I don't get the presence of the living God in my life, I'm going to die. Most of us would have to say, would we not? No. No. I've been thinking about that, why that is. I'm sure there's many reasons, but one of them is this. We live in a culture, friends, and let's be honest about this, in which our most talented artists backed by hundreds of millions of dollars, produce persuasive and compelling storytelling, narrative, film, art, all kinds of works, in which the message is very persuasive that there is no God. If there's some sort of divine energy or life force, it's not personal. He wouldn't intervene in your life in response to the prayer of his child. That actually life is short and dark and meaningless. And we all absorb that water. And so we don't go desperate for God, even though our souls truly are desperate for God. Now, can I say the, 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 the phrase that life is short and dark and meaningless? As humans, we all experience that sometimes. That's why Psalm 88 ends, darkness is my only companion. There will be moments where you feel that. But Psalm after Psalm after Psalm after Psalm tells us a different story, a profound and true realization for the follower of God. Look at Psalm 63, verse 2. I have gazed upon you in your holy place that I might behold your power and your glory. 
David doesn't mean literally. You can't see God face to face and live. What he means is the eyes of my heart, the soul of my, uh, my soul opened up and I actually had a sense of encounter with the living God. I, I had a sense of seeing his power and his glory. Did you know God can be beheld by you if you press in deeper in prayer? Verse 3, your loving kindness is better than life itself. Loving kindness is this awkward English way we try to translate a Hebrew word that we can't quite get because we don't understand God's love. What it means is loyal love. It means unfailing love. It means covenant love. And we go, we don't have an experience of someone who would love us so much they would never, ever stop loving us no matter what we did or how we retreated them. We don't have any... And so we try with loving kindness, but that doesn't get it. And David says, God, the fact that you would love me like that, that's even better than me staying alive. This is the kind of life that you and I can have in prayer. That's what it means to go deeper, to seek God and find God. Now let's talk about how you and I would get there. What would that take? Well, thankfully, God starts the process, not us. And here's how God starts the process. He makes us thirsty. Some of you are wondering, why is it my quiet times, which always used to kind of work, don't work for me right now? Could it be that God is saying, I've got a deeper experience for you of me, and you're going to have to leave that behind to come deeper in prayer with me right now? Why is it some of you, you've been asking for an answer, you're not getting an answer, you're kind of bottled up about it. Could it be that God is saying, come deeper with me, and he's making you thirsty. He's making me thirsty. So we just go, oh, I've got to get in the deep end of the pool. I can't stay in shallow anymore. That's how, it, that's how it starts. God makes us thirsty. Now, how do we respond? If you would turn over in your bulletin to Philippians 3, I want to use the heart language of one of the great people of prayer in the New Testament, just as we've used the heart language of one of the great people of prayer in the Old. Look at verse 7 there of Philippians 3, if you would. Paul's talking here about all the spiritual advantages he had growing up. He grew up in a religious family. He had this flawless religious life. He had all this teaching, and yet he says, verse 7, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Do you see Paul's having the same exact experience that David had, which is, God, I need you. Eagerly, I desire you. And what Paul teaches us here is something profound. He's teaching it in regards to righteousness in Christ, but the same principle applies in prayer, which namely is this. To get to the best, sometimes you've got to throw away the good. Do you get that? To get to the best of a deeper encounter with God in Jesus Christ, sometimes you've got to throw away even the good stuff. Sometimes to get to the deep end of the pool, you've got to leave behind the shallow end, even though there's nothing wrong with the shallow end. And he's saying, would you throw that away and pursue everything? So just count it garbage so you get to Christ. Now, what would you and I have to throw away in our lives of prayer that is good, but it might be keeping us from something even better of seeking and finding God in Christ? I want to just pastorally suggest a couple possibilities. And these are not exhaustive. Maybe the Holy Spirit's already pointing you to one. But let me share these two with you if I could. The first one I want to talk about is this. Our expectation for a satisfying quiet time. Yeah. Our expectation for a satisfying quiet time. 
When I was in my 20s, I had a, a, a guy, I didn't report to him, but I considered him my mentor. I told him he was my mentor. I read everything that he wrote, and I tried to hang out with him whenever I could because he was this brilliant business leader, and I learned so much from him, and he poured so much into my life. And one time, he and I were on an elevator together in a hotel, and we were coming down on the elevator, and Fred turned to me and he said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about prayer, and I've realized prayer doesn't change things. Prayer changes me. And it was the only time I ever challenged him, my mentor. I looked him straight in the eye and said, Fred, if that's all prayer does, I have zero interest in prayer. Right? I mean, if prayer doesn't really bring any answers, if it's just sort of a meditation and centering time for me, I can get calm and centered with a coffee and a Cinnabon. I don't need that. And every Bible-believing Christian should stand that prayer does change things. I've seen prayer bring marriages back together that everyone had given up hope on, including the therapist. I've seen prayer bring uh, children back off of drugs when everybody had written them off and they looked like they were headed for jail. I've seen prayer do astonishing things. I've seen physical healings. Not as many as I wanted, but more than I thought I ever would see. So we should never back down from thinking God answers prayer and ask Him for those answers. But here's the thing. Even though I reject doctrinally the teaching that prayer is about changing me, I subtly am tainted by that kind of thinking. Because I build up within myself an expectation of a satisfying quiet time. Here's the quiet time, perfect quiet time I want in my mind. First of all, I want mental focus. I want my mind to stay in one place and not wrap it around and think about the Cubs score and not now, God, Arietta's throwing a no-hitter. You know, I, I, ah, I want mental focus. And then I want to gain a spiritual insight. I want a light bulb to go on. And then I want to pray in a, in a substantive way for several significant prayer needs. And then I want to get up off my knees and I want to walk out feeling, honestly, pretty darn good about myself and about God. Perfect quiet time. What if... What if you and I went beyond that? What if you and I said, Jesus, I want you even more than I want that good thing? What if I just showed up and hung out with you, even if it honestly wasn't that emotionally satisfying for me right now? I didn't know this for many years in my prayer life, and and the person who really taught it to me was uh, the late Cardinal Bernadine, the uh, uh, Archbishop of uh, Chicago here. In the 80s. And he came out and spoke to a group of pastors in Wheaton. And here's what he said. He said, you know, every morning I start on my kneeler in prayer. I can't remember now exactly how long. It was either 15 minutes. It might have been as much as 30, but it wasn't past 30. And, and he said, and here's what some days look like for me. I'm on my kneeler and I start to pray. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we're closing down that inner city neighborhood school because we just can't afford to keep it going even though I really want to. There's not enough nuns who will volunteer anymore. We don't have enough nuns to run it, and we don't have the budget. And so, yeah, when I go to my office today, looking outside my window, there's going to be lines of protesters all carrying signs saying, the church doesn't care, and and the church hates poor people, and and the TV trucks with the cameras are going to be here running all that, and uh, that's going to be my day. Oh, 15 minutes are up. Okay, Lord, those are my prayers. And all of a sudden, I was, it was so freeing to me. I was like, oh, you mean you can do that? That's not cheating? That counts as prayer? Yes, yes, and yes. Do you see, we have this myth in our culture of quality time. And we need to destroy that myth. When I was a kid, seriously, 
There was no phrase in the culture, quality time. It did not exist. It was invented in the 1970s to try to reduce the guilt that all parents have that they're not spending enough time with their kids. So the, 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 the meme was, hey, hey, beloved child of mine, I can't really spend a lot of time with you, but at least the time I spend will be quality time. Right. Now, here's what we've all discovered as a culture working with that concept for 30 or 40 years. It actually goes like this. The day that you plan the big trip and the amazing outing where you're expecting quality time, it devolves and falls apart and into yelling and pouting and, and a miserable day for everybody. And the boring trip in the van to the grocery store when you were bored out of your mind and didn't expect anything, all of a sudden this magic moment of conversation opens up between you and your child and the heavens open and the angels sing. Okay, it turns out, friends, that the only way you and I ever get quality time is to spend time time. And so, if it's true with family and other people, it's true with God. So the way we defeat this overweening expectation of an emotionally satisfying quiet time is real simple. We just show up. Now, I'm not going to tell you how much to show up or when to show up. You'll figure that out in your life. And I know that as a mom with preschoolers, it's going to be very limited right now in this season, of course. But the point is you just show up. I've been reading a great book on prayer by a friend named Alice. It's not published yet, but one of the great phrases she has in this book is she says, ugly is a part of prayer. Ugly is a part of prayer. And what she means by that is, I sit down, I'm squirrely, my mind's running all over the place, and I have to kind of lasso myself and decompress in order to actually spend some time before God. And that doesn't feel satisfying. That feels like a wrestling. Ugly is a part of prayer. Would you give yourself permission to just show up I think you'll find more freedom and more connection with Jesus Christ. Now, in the time that's left, I have to touch on a a, a second thing that's very good that we may need to leave behind to go deeper in prayer. And in many ways, it's more profound. And that is this. Sometimes to move deeper in our prayer life with God, we need to give up our demand for an answer. Our demand for an answer. Psalm 63.3, for your loving kindness is better than life itself. David wants to live. He wants life. But he's saying, you know what? If I had to choose, even beyond that, I'd want you, God. That's even, that's even more important for me. Now, what is the last thing that you prayed about? You've been knocking on the door of heaven for this. It's very important to you. You've been asking God. You've been begging God. You've been asking other people to pray for it. Are you more determined to get that answer or to get it God? Would you be willing to say, God, I want you so much that even if you don't give me this answer that I so desperately want and need, I still want you. What does it do to a father's heart when his child says to him, Dad, even if you don't bring me anything, I want you. I want you. I've been learning this lesson again the hard way. As many of you know, over the last year, I've been, I was in a long season of vocational fog and quandary. 
And in the midst of that, all I wanted from God was just wisdom and discernment. I was praying, God, would you give me wisdom? Would you give me a light on my path? You've promised that. Would you give me discernment? And, and I sent this email out in the midst of this where I was not getting that, but I was really praying, and I sent it out to my intercessors, uh, a group of friends who've agreed to pray for me. And I said, would you pray for me to have wisdom and discernment and light from God as to my path in, in my vocational journey at this season? And, and here's what one of them wrote back to me. And I printed out the email. She said, Dear Kevin, as I was praying for you, I sensed that the Lord was calling you not to a deeper understanding of his will in your life, but to an actual absence of any kind of certainty. Oh, man. Could it be he does not want you to be discerning much at all right now? Would it be a test to put it aside? Maybe there's a work he wants to do in you where all that thinking and discerning and wisdom seeking simply gets in the way. Are there parts of Kevin that need to die? <laughs> yeah, so we're not friends anymore. And uh, No, she gave me one of the amazing gifts, one of the most beautiful and precious gifts one Christian can give to another, which is to hear from the Lord for a person who can't hear for themselves right then. And that phrase, actual absence of certainty, became a mantra for my life. And when I finally stopped wrestling and demanding that God give me this answer, this clarity, and I still had fog, I finally said, Jesus, I'll take you even if I still have the fog. And when I did that, I cannot tell you what happened, because words fail, but I can tell you I somehow got into the deeper part of the pool than the one I had been in. I was on a flight to Charlotte this week, and I was back in those cramped confines of coach. But even there, my soul began to open up to God, and I could sense the heavens open up, and my soul found the one whom it loves. This is the promise for you. You can go deeper in prayer. God's designed you to long for it. He's built in a mechanism to make you thirsty so you'll get there. And all he asks is, would you... Take those good things you have right now, as good as they are, and would you let them go, maybe throw them away, so that you could have something even more important, which is me. Jesus says to you, he says to your longing heart, he says to me, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Amen.